Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and today we're sitting down in our office, and which is a little bit weird because we don't do this often. We should do it more, uh, but it seems like we've been having a lot of guests on the phone. We've been on the road a lot. We've been on the road a lot. That is true. That is true. So we haven't done one of these in the office in a couple months, but it's all good. But we are sitting here with Kelly Traverso. Thank you, Kelly, for coming into the office. Thank you for having me. You had a long drive. You you were (laughs) kind of far from here, right? Yeah, a whole like four miles. Four miles. Long commute. Traffic was awful. Yeah. Well, you never know. Like, <laughs> there could be, like, especially this time of year. I know, like, last year there was, like, you know, with the spring, you have these babies. I remember last year I was – I live locally, too, and I was delayed, like, 10 minutes because there was, like, a duck with the little babies, oh, yeah. like, crossing the road. And, yep. like, and then there was one here even on the main road on 67. The geese. The geese, yeah, like, crossing mm-hmm. over. Like, sometimes it could – Really put a snag in your yeah. travel plans. <laughs> well, this time last year was a year. Yesterday was uh, the year the, anniversary the of the tornado. Yeah. So it was a totally different picture in it, this year than it was last year. Which I travel a ton. I know you were just mm-hmm. saying you travel quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And like when people say we like, oh, we had a tornado in Connecticut. They're like, get out of here. Right. I'm like, no, we had. too. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And I think part of that, you know, is just like I think with the way that uh, – there's no such thing as global warming. Al Gore was was not right, but that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> but you know, with with this area being so densely populated, and also we have so many trees, like the devastation. But I think that my point here is like it impacted like five towns, mm-hmm. and if you didn't live in those five towns, you didn't really care, right? Right. Like, yeah, you didn't even know what happened. Yeah. Actually, like life yeah. was just normal. Yeah, it's yeah. just crazy, crazy. The so, trees yeah. are still down, and everything's. We're getting back to it, but it's still hopefully now with the trees come the leaves coming back on the trees, it won't look it as looks bad. A li- it looks a little <laughs> yeah. bit better, yeah. Because for the winter time, it you could really tell where like the areas were that were mm-hmm. devastated. It was Absolutely. so fascinating. Well, thank you for coming in and joining us here on our podcast. And as we do with our guests, um, I know you're you're here because you have a connection to the disease. Mm-hmm. And we want to share that with our audience. So this is your opportunity to give us a little bit of background on why you're here today. Sure. So um, my mother-in-law, Judy, sorry, this gets emotional. <laughs> no, it's been a couple of years. Um, she passed away in November of 2018 with pancreatic cancer. Um, she was part of my life since I met my husband back in 2001, and she was the grandmother to my two children, who they loved and adored dearly. Um, so the reason why I'm doing this is because since her passing, I've always tried to want to do something better for her to keep her memory alive. And so... This is, you know, I was contacted by one of your um, colleagues, and it was really something, it was actually at the Pink, the Seymour Pink, where we um, kind of reconnected, and so she wanted to see if I would be interested in sharing my story just from a from a family's perspective with regards to how we handle and deal with um, pancreatic cancer as a family. So how did you get involved with Seymour Pink, which is another great, they're local here, they yeah. do some great things. My mom's actually a two-time breast cancer survivor, yeah. so I love what those guys do, and, and they've got a really good story, you know. Yeah, so from the gym, I, oh, cool. I've i been a member of, uh, well, it's changed names a few yeah, times, but yeah. currently uh, CW Fitness since I moved back to Connecticut in uh, 2009. Cool. So um, just part of their events, running their 5Ks, doing, you know, um, any sort of fundraising activities that they have participating in those. So um, I also have a couple good friends in town that are breast cancer survivors. And so being able to give back to that, you know, community too has been important. But this was something that um, I've always tried to follow. Uh, I follow you, <laughs> cool. and and you know, try to get involved and do what I can for for the cause. 
Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you for the support. And so um, let's talk a little bit about Judy here. Uh, so when was she originally diagnosed? Um, so it was a little unclear. So she was diagnosed um, probably... Formally, she was diagnosed in July of 2016. She passed in November, so we had a few months um, with her. Her symptoms started to, I mean, Judy just in of herself was, she was a nurse. Um, she was actually a um, school nurse for a long time. And um, she always took great care of herself, always getting her annual exams and going to the doctor. She was actually always pushing my father-in-law to do, you know, healthier things. And they traveled and she had a great um a great sense of energy and just spirit about her. And so it was probably around May of that of 2016. She wasn't really feeling well. Some GI issues were happening and she was going to various different doctors. Um, and then she had like psoriasis, which was interesting. She was, she was put on some different medications for that. And I think at the same time as when some of the GI issues and things started to arise, which I think probably was a contributing factor to what was happening and that may have masked some of the symptoms. Um, so it was my son's birthday in June and she had come, I remember this clearly, and she had gotten a few tests done that hadn't come back fairly positive. So they needed to do further biopsies and, um, tests. And it was J July 4th weekend because they had a house in the Cape. Um, and so we'd always go to Cape Cod for, for July. And it was then that she, um, was told within that week that the, they found lesions on her pancreas as well as her liver and a few other areas. Um, but it was inconclusive and she needed to get further tests. And so um, probably following that next week is when it was um, formally diagnosed as pancreatic cancer. So she was advanced stage, it sounds like. Somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, um, she, she, she did chemo. Um, she went through, um, you know, doing different variations of chemo. And I think ultimately thinking back, it was probably for us, not for her, you know, because of what she was going through, it was pretty rough. But, um, you know, she was kind of always joking around. She got new wigs and she would go get makeup done and things like that. Um, and the kids, you know, knew that she just, we tried to mask it from the kids as much as we could. They just knew she wasn't really feeling well, but, um, we had a great summer with her and, um, the last my kids saw her was on um, Halloween. How old were your kids? Um, Drew will be 10 next month and Emily is seven. So they were pretty young then. When, so if we're going back two years, so it was eight and Yeah, my eight daughter five. just knew that, you know, grandma was sick. Um, and she wasn't feeling well. They didn't even know what cancer was. We didn't even explain to them. Yeah. Even when, um, you know, I was with Judy the night she passed um, at her home. And even then... Yeah, you know, the kids really didn't know. They just knew that she was sick and she wasn't feeling well and she went to heaven. Are there other siblings that are involved in the family? So, yeah. So my husband has a sister uh -huh. and Judy had two kids. She has um, a daughter who has two children and a son who has um, a few children as well. So four total then. Yeah. So how many grandkids then total? Oh gosh, so it's four, five, six, eight. Yeah. And all ages? Yeah, um, the oldest one right now is 16. So they were all fairly young then when this, yeah. I mean, 14 and to three years was five, right? Yeah. Your daughter was five years old. Yeah, so. it's super quick. We didn't, I mean, I think no one just had time to digest. It happened so quickly. Yeah. As you know, right? I mean, it's not like, I mean, the prognosis was probably a year. It could have been a year, but it wasn't. It was like six months. I think, um, you know, sadly, this is not a, a story that's not far too common or uncommon, I should say. Right. 
you know, and unfortunately that's just, I think one of the things that we've been really pushing is just, you know, there's no screening or detection tools, you know, and that's the most frustrating, I think, with this disease, you know, is that um, we don't have proper screening techniques yet like other diseases that right. really are game changers and save lives. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing, and you mentioned something, you know, with the psoriasis and some other issues, I think the other thing that's the biggest concern, one of the bigger concerns is just the awareness factor, you know, because I don't think people are aware of like a symptom like I, we talked about Seymour Pink, you know, breast cancer, I think does a great job in the sense like, hey, if you have a lump, you can feel it like right. you go right away. Pancreatic you have a stomach ache or yeah, something. Or GI just, issues. Yeah, like, I mean, it could be IBD. It could be a you know a virus. It could be some food allergies yeah. or something or dinner that just didn't yeah. sit well last night right. or something. Gluten. Yeah, gluten. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's always the it's always the go to. But yeah, yeah, it's like you have to eliminate all these things before you can get to a definitive answer. Sometimes, and it's so frustrating because that can take a very long time. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about Judy. Like, what are some of the things? I know you said she's a school nurse, but I, yeah. I'm sure she was probably pretty impactful in the kids' lives and in your life. Yeah, she was one of those, like, grandmas that, like, gave you this, like, big kind of sometimes sweaty hug, um, <laughs> which was somewhat uncomfortable at times, but also, you know, fantastic all the same. We're like, oh, she always has this, like, cuddle. She loved the kids. Um, she was also a very um, avid quilter, so she was um, she loved to quilt and knit. So, the one thing that she'll you know that I'm really lucky to have is she used to make jewelry and stained glass. So we have a lot of her things um, that she made. Um, you know, she made the kids winter hats. She would make them sweaters. Um, we have quilts that she's done. Um, she was always really artsy. My father-in-law also equally as creative and. Um, Artsy is, um, he does woodworking and things like that. So the two of them were a really good match. Um, they would share their uh, love for creativity and, and, and the arts. And so she would always have these things um, that she'd like to do. And they loved to read. She would sit down, um, one of her favorite places, <clears throat> excuse me, was at the Cape. So they had a, ha- a house in the Cape. And um, she'd just go to the beach and hang out and read and walk and take the dogs out. Um, so she was always active. Um and, you know, willing to help. She always wanted to watch the kids or always concerned about making sure that, you know, my husband and I or my sister-in-law and, and her husband had time, you know, to themselves and making mm-hmm. sure that, you know, she can like let the kids give me the kids. We'll do something. We'll take them out. We'll do something. So very, very family oriented, um, which is why, like, you know, I think when we think about her disease and sort of how she just wanted to live it out and see um, with as minimal interruptions as possible to her like life you know so we had that the kids used to love going up um she had the chair installed to go up the stairs uh, so i just remember those commercials with like the old guy going up the stairs yeah. so we always used to joke with her but like the kids thought it was like the greatest thing they would just like push the button and they go all the way up go to the, up stairs, the stairs and they'd ride it back down like a little like escalator um and so she would think that was the best you know thing ever um and they never really asked. We just said grandma's getting old and she can't go up the stairs as, as easily as she used to. Um, and they never really thought anything of it. But she sort of made it fun, even with a hospital bed when it was in um, into her you know living room and stuff. Yeah. How old was she? Was she, she was, I think she was 67. Oh, so she was um, young. Yeah. So your father-in-law now, is he local too? 
They live um, on the other side of Hartford. Oh, okay. So um, they were um, probably like an hour away. Um, so he he's moved. Um, he moved out of the current house that he's in, and um, you know he's still you know he's healthy. Um, he's had some health issues in the past too, um, which was you know always the thing to make sure watching him, uh, and that Judy would always be fine, <laughs> right? Um, it's a weird trick life plays on you, I guess, right? You just never yeah. know. Well, I think too, and what we've seen is not to say that there's an intuition, but I think like a lot of the survivors and families that we've talked to that have gone through similar paths, there's like this preparedness mm-hmm. that these people go through with their spouse, you know, to prepare them for the finality of yeah. what will occur. And it's very interesting to see like how people do that, like in a very subtle way, not necessarily like in your face, right. kind of like, hey, this is what you have to do. But there's these little lessons, I guess I would call them, that happen. Yeah. And how their spouse who survives like has prepared for some things, not everything. Yeah. I don't think any, anyone's ever prepared for loss, right? Like, it's true. I mean, I think that she she definitely was prepared. I mean, she made sure, which is interesting, right? Because I think your body goes through, and that's just what I perceive and, and witnessed, is that it kind of goes through this, like, the stage. It's the stages of grieving, essentially, right? Yeah. And, like, denial is basically one of the first steps. And so, you know, her just kind of going through the motions, somewhat emotionless, right? Just to kind of get things in order, like, very business-oriented, making sure things are there. Like, this is it. Like, she was very factual, that it, and I think with her having the healthcare background, she knew what she was in for. You know, she knew what was going to happen in the sequence of events that could occur. And so I think early on, she was, you know, digested her diagnosis and the prognosis, and then subsequently just kind of started tackling and executing on certain things that she knows she needed to get done before it got to the point where she just didn't have enough energy to do it. Um, and so, like, her weakness was, you know, I mean, she looked great. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, she would go and her chemo treatments and, and they were working well. I think it probably, it extended her longer than I think had she not done them. Um, but we were somewhat prepared, to your point. And, but you're also, there's this also, you know, factor that also plays in is like, is it like, is she or isn't she like, Maybe she's not. Maybe it's just a joke. Like maybe they didn't know what they were talking about. And it's actually she can get. So it's this game. It's like, is it six months or is it a year? And then like you're creeping up on like that mark and you're like waiting and then nothing happens. And then you're sort of like you're living literally on tippy toes for, you know, however long until you start seeing like the decline and you know there's it's coming soon. But it's still it's like this waiting game that's really emotional. It's almost I. I agree with you 120% when I went through it with my dad. It's like Groundhog Day. You mm-hmm. ever watch that movie, Groundhog mm-hmm. Day? It's like waking up mm-hmm. for Groundhog Day. Like every exactly. Day, you know, and yeah. having the same, is today going to be the day? Or yeah. what's going to happen today? And unfortunately for our listeners at home, Kelly, I don't think there's a way that, unless you've gone through it, to like really get that, yeah. right? Like in some ways, because I, and I think, and partly I think is like the hope and I don't know, maybe this is a question. I don't know if you felt at some point like that, like there is hope. There's always hope, right? That yeah. the person's going to like rebound, right. right? And so I think human nature, I'm not a negative person. I, I perceive myself as pretty positive. And I know for me, 
like maybe I didn't want to give up that hope of like, hey, this is it, like done reality. I mean, at right. the, the very end, like the last week, I kind of knew like, all right, like I was, all right, let's put this to bed, like put my dad at peace, mm-hmm. let us have peace <laughs> was more the conversation than like there's hope, like there's still right. a little bit of hope that we can rebound here. Yeah. Like he'll come home or, you know, something will happen. And I think that's just human nature, right? Like, I, yeah. And you think about it. I mean, I my sister, my sister-in-law, Kristen, Judy's daughter, was she lived very close to Judy, like within a couple of miles. And so mm-hmm. I know it was her mom, and she definitely took the brunt of it all. Um, you know, taking her mom to the you know chemo treatments and some and sometimes and just driving her and you know seeing her more frequently and watching um, watching the disease progress. Um, and so I would call her, call Kristen and ask how it's doing. And, and we would both like rejoice in like the good days. Like she was like, oh, she's feeling great. And it's like, yes, like awesome. She's got energy and um, things are looking up. And then, you know, three, four days later, you know, we we text back and forth and she would say she's kind of sleeping. She's not really feeling that great. Um, she's not eating, right? She would lose a lot of weight. Um, and so we would just sort of like have these like days where like gold days, like this is a good day. And we just sort of like try to live it as long as we could, you know, stretch those good days out um, and sort of give us more fuel for the bad days. Um, You know, but Kristen really was, was the one that was there um, and seeing it more than, because we were, you know, a little bit farther away from home, but we were both with, you know, all with her the night before she passed. She passed early in the morning, but working with the um, hospice nurse and getting her settled. And um, she, at that point, she just wasn't coherent at that night yeah it's like this roller coaster yeah and i think when the wheels fall off as i say they fall off pretty hard yeah that's the one thing with this disease is that unfortunately sometimes like there's always that hope that people rebound and we've seen some i i i have to tell the audience and you i mean i've seen people go into hospice we've even had a guy on our podcast where the wife had said you know, he, he couldn't even get his head off the pillow and she was ready to call a hospice right. and get them involved. And then a week later, like he made this miraculous turnaround. And when he came in to do our podcast, he looked like he had just played 18 rounds of golf. That's incredible. He looks amazing. Yeah, I actually just saw on Facebook, he would, he just floor pressed 115 pounds. Like he went to the gym like yeah. yesterday, yesterday, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's Kevin, fantastic. Yeah. That was Kevin. Yeah, Kevin Chunard. And he lives up in, in the Hartford area. And we had them, him and his wife, on a podcast, and so th- there are, yeah. there's hope, right? Yeah. So this is the hope that right. we, unfortunately, and that's like, yeah, and that's what know, we want, right? And that's like you it. hear these stories, and you're so happy for them, yeah. And it's like, how does that happen? Like, what was he doing? What did he eat? Like, how did he, you know? I, I don't know. I mean, Kevin <laughs> had a BRCA mutation, and I know right. when he was diagnosed uh, and given traditional chemotherapy treatment, it was not a BRCA protocol, and then. When they realized that he had this BRCA gene mutation, mm-hmm. they changed his treatment protocol and it was like it flipped the switch and it was like night and day. So, you know, that goes back to what we talked a little bit on off off the mic here, you know, about awareness and, you know, raising um, protocol and doing some things that we're trying to do, you know, with the medical community and stuff. So I, I think... We are getting better. Um, unfortunately, you know, I think in 2016, it just wasn't there. You know, yeah. I think these are things that have just recently happened. Um, you know, this year, the NIH mandated that everyone who is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer now goes through genetic testing because we do know that 
for a fair amount of the cases. I think, I believe, please don't quote me. The public will probably call me out on this. <laughs> I think it's 15% of the pancreatic cancer cases diagnosed in the United States have some sort of genetic mutation. So they originate from a BRCA, uh, Lynch syndrome, hmm. uh, palpy, um, which is a, a sister brother of BRCA1 and 2, palpy1 mm-hmm. and 2. So these genetic mutations... 15% of them, um, 15% of the cases of pancreatic cancer are from these genetic mutations. And we do know now that there is a treatment protocol that actually does well. Um, it's not a game changer right. in the sense that it, it will um, 100% save your life. But we do know there are patients that actually have very good quality of life and have um, disease regression from this protocol of treatments. But the key is knowing, right? right? Like if you don't know, and that's really the, the the hard part, I think, for a lot of patients and families. I mean, we just had someone call in the other day, and I asked them if they did genetic testing, and they didn't. And yeah, I was like, come on, like this like is that's protocol. one of the first things. That, this yeah. is protocol now, and these doctors, and this is something that uh, we do preach as well. Is like that's the difference, I think, of going to for those folks listening at home, going to a major center a center of excellence mm-hmm. that is doing these kind of things versus your rural community hospital, which is not a bad hospital, right. but they're just probably not equipped for dealing with pancreatic right. cancer. And the traditional methods, as you mentioned, are not necessarily going, it's not a one size fits all. And, no. um, and so, you know, at certain points it could do you know, more harm and in, in other instances with just like the side effects and the different, you know, quality of life issues yeah. than if you, you know, thinking the more innovation and the more innovative centers that are looking outside the box to try and figure it out and taking risk, you know, being sort of those risk takers and thinking like this is something that's possible that we can, we can do. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's your life and people would love, I think, to do anything they could. And so it's either their means of travel. I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, my field has always been in life sciences. I did drug safety. Uh, I do drug safety and pharmacovigilance, which is monitoring side effects of clinical trials and marketed products. I've been doing it since I've graduated school. Um, and so I see patients. I see patients in clinical trials, and I know what they go through in terms of travel and cost. And, you know, they are traveling three hours one way. They're sitting in infusion centers for six, seven hours, and they have to sort of find their way back, and they're relying on loved ones to sort of take them back and forth or a bus or whatever. And it's really, and sometimes going to those centers is more difficult than it is just going to a local, you know, hospital and just getting some sort of treatment. Standard of care. Yeah. Why that's major. What made you go into that? So I was kind of fascinated. Usually people come in like accountant. Yeah, no, I know. My husband always has trouble understanding what I do. Um, He just explains it in a way like, you know, those commercials that say may cause this, 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 and this. That's what she does. Um, In a sense, that's what I do. Um, So I got in, I was a pre-med student in college. Um, I interned. I went to UConn. Oh, cool. Up in stores. And I was a pre-med student. And so I interned at the health center, UConn Health Center in Farmington. Um, I, um, I actually did rotations with the Dean, um, who is an oncologist and, um, I did a couple surgery rotations. And then in the summers I worked, um, at a pharma company in Stanford. And so, um, very quickly, a couple of my mentors, you know, trying to think about as I was working, um, at that pharma company in clinical trials were like, you should do drug safety. It's like the up and coming thing. Like this is where you really get to use some of your medical background to understand, the risk profile of the products and understand how it's 
functioning in the, you know, in the human body and being able to identify some of the risks that are associated or benefits, right? There's also unexpected benefits of drugs that you take, as we all know. And so that's sort of how I got into it. When I graduated, I didn't go to medical school. Um, I wanted to take some time and I ended up getting a job at a pharmaceutical company um, processing like non, what we call non-serious cases. So these are the adverse events that, you know, eye pain or leg pain, things like that, nausea, and then just progressively getting more involved in looking at the clinical trials and um, training the investigators on how to report, what to report and why it's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've just sort of been doing it since then. So let's talk about this for a mm-hmm. second, because I'm fascinated by this. And you bring up, a, you say some, some stuff that I'm, uh, Interested on learning And I talk more. fast, so I'll put the coffee That's, all right. That's all right. The caffeine's kicking <laughs> in. So I've heard this from many partners, and I just came back from the world. We're partnered in the World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition, which is 81 groups now around the globe with the same mission of trying to end this thing called mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer. And we get together once a year. Now I think it's moving to like once every 16 months. Um, but so we get together and we talk about how we can all work together in raising awareness of the disease. And in particular, the main awareness event that is being he- that's held every year now for the past couple of years is World Pancreatic Cancer Day, which happens in November because mm-hmm. November is Pancreatic Cancer right. Awareness Month. But one of the things that we also talk about is like learning from each group and, you know, best practices. And so we have these um meetings within the meeting set up to talk about certain topics and clinical trials was this just this past year and and we we have funded clinical trials um there's another group pancan that has a grade 800 line so if someone is diagnosed and they want to try to get into a clinical trial they can call pancan and they have people that are staffed you know nine to five that will help families navigate through the clinical trial process in terms of eligibility where they're available and such and they do a great job. My question, though, uh, for you, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is I know from talking to a lot of the partners and some of the scientists and doctors is this, and this is might be more on the FDA side, is like how do we fast track some of these treatments because it, it takes a long time mm-hmm. to get from, you know, from a drug that's in the lab mm-hmm. to actually market could take 10 years. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, so you know, what what are some of the things, in your opinion, since you're in the trenches there, talking about drug safety, that maybe can be done, or maybe it can't be done, effectively to like fast track some of these? Because I know there's been a lot of talk recently. I've been to some stuff at Yale where they had the head of the FDA mm-hmm. and the head of the cancer center and pharma, and they talked about like how do we work together to get more progress in this Mm -hmm. space. And I I think it's a real challenge. It is a challenge, and I think there's no right answer. I mean, that's the question I think we've been trying to answer ourselves, just understanding how to to move these along. I mean, there is – there are regulations that we need to follow, (laughs) and there are things that – you know, there are products that for certain indications that do um, receive fast-track orphan drug status um, that are quicker review times than – than that of the traditional cycles. And so there's criteria and there's things that you need to follow in order to sort of apply for that fast track approval. And even so, fast track is, you know, not necessarily it's as fast. Yeah. It's not really fast. <laughs> right, track, as, right, as fast as you would think. But, um, you know, I'm not quite sure really because the way to get, I mean, you can get 
maybe some innovation in the technology and, and awareness of drugs that are in the market, you know, in pre-market in the lab. There are probably some ways to accelerate that into the into phase one, which was the healthy volunteers in some cases, you know, phase one clinical trials. And then you still have the phase one. You still have to go through your phases um, to get the patient, you know, and phase two really is where the safety and efficacy of that product comes right. into play. Yeah. And that's where you have your pivotal studies, and phase two and phase three are really your, your pivotal studies. Um, it's around the patient engagement and patient centricity of getting the patients um, involved and recruiting them into the programs. Um, and so once they're in and adhering to the clinical trials, because the key is not necessarily getting them into the trials, it's getting them to stay and adhere to. So it's structuring your protocols accordingly to make sure that they're they they can be adhered to and that it's beneficial for both the company you know the the company as well to get the information that they need to make sure that the drug is safe and effective as well as the patient that minimizes any sort of harm to them and is somewhat um, you know easy to follow and and just something that doesn't radically change their their way of living um, and so I think there's a fine balance there I mean we're companies are constantly trying I mean the pharma industry is, is always trying to think about different things patientless sites, things like that, that are coming through. Um, but I think ultimately it'll still always be a challenge. Yeah. I think the other challenge too for this disease is it's a, a low, I mean, there's 53,000 people, right? So it's, you have this, and I've always said for us and raising awareness, like you look at breast cancer, it's 250,000 people. So that's a larger population. So if you have all these clinical trials going on, you have, it's just sheer numbers, right? You have yeah. a quarter of a million versus 53,000. And then if we look at staging, some some trials are only for stage one and two. You correct. know, there's yeah. eligibility requirements. Yeah, so correct. Yeah. it becomes a real challenge. The screening is yeah. Yeah, to find so, the right patients. And, you know, and that's really the challenge, I think, with this disease. And I've talked to a lot of investigators and scientists and doctors and, and even my counterparts at Pharma. You know, we have this discussion often, it seems like. It's just like to get away from the sheer numbers and then also access to it, right? Because not everyone's within, you know, a certain radius exactly. of a clinical center, trial yeah, and can actually make yeah. it and, yeah I, I think where we are located here in new england like we have i've always said to people like if you want a referral we can send you to new york or boston if you live here in connecticut it's worth it right? it absolutely it's, is it's worth the hour two hours whatever whereas people in like southern illinois like or like northern indiana it's like a real news i mean that's a real challenge to try to get to a major medical center get to mayo or chicago mm -hmm. you know eight hours you know, you said, like, you've seen people, like, you know, they take the bus. Like, imagine going eight hours just for a consultation right. or just to, to see if you can get in, excuse me, get into something. Like, it's a, it becomes yeah. a real it's, challenge. It's really challenging and, and difficult, and it's wearing, right? And in some cases, you have the patients, and I can just imagine going through what they go through and wanting to just be like, it's not, like, just wanting to give up, right? The travel, the commute, the medic the medicine's not working or the tests that have to be drawn and this and that. And they just get tired of being poked and prodded and with an unknown outcome, right? Yeah. They don't know that what they're doing is actually going to help them. Um, and so that's the faith and the belief that you have to have that if you're going to do a clinical trial or, you know, go for these consultations that you, you have to stay committed and at the outcome is going to always be the outcome, but you have to give it a shot or else, you know, I, and this is easy speaking for me that, that hasn't had, you know, any you know significant disease, thankfully. Um, but you have to imagine that I, you know, I know if Judy was 
had the option to do the clinical trials, I think, you know, she would have done anything she possibly could to stay alive, to do whatever it took. Um, I think she was, it was just too far advanced at that point um, to make any real impact there. So she did the quality of care and and it worked for a little bit, but. Yeah, there's no right or wrong. No. At that point, I think you have to decide what's best and, you know, whether you decide to try to get into a trial or you decide to go yeah. quality of life route or alternative route. We've had plenty of people that have reached out to us about alternatives. and Yeah, that's know. also really yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating, right? <laughs> the um, stories there are incredible. But whatever works, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to try it. And regardless, I honestly think regardless of the cancer, um, you know, I know we're talking about pancreatic cancer, but just for the public listening at home, um, we've never, and I, I personally have never said anything other than like, Hey, if it works, do it. Like if going to church and right. blessing yourself with holy water works, yeah, then right. do it. You know, if, uh, sipping on cannabis oil or right. you know, taking <laughs> cannabis oil and it works, you do it. If it's smoking it, whatever, eating mushrooms, Making whatever, it, yeah. yeah, whatever you have to do that works. Um, because it, it's so complex. So going back to Judy, um, and appreciate your thoughts on the clinical trials mm-hmm. and, and getting your and I agree with you and and just to last segment on that is for listeners at home there are plenty of resources out there for clinical trials so if families are listening there's pancan and they can reach out to us and we can connect them with pancan yeah clinicaltrials.gov which I find though could sometimes be complex to navigate a little a bit. A little bit. Yeah. It can be. It's the government. Yeah. <laughs> so it's true. They like to yeah, yeah. they like to make things really <laughs> hidden, complicated. Yeah, there's hidden things there, uh, but. but there there is there are resources out there to try to navigate through that. And but I want to get back to Judy and talk a little bit of, uh, more about her and what do you think were probably some of the most important things as a family that you guys did when this was occurring and when she was diagnosed that you could share with our audience? Yeah, I think um, the most memorable um, and like really enjoy, you know, enjoyable that for all of us was that, um, so my sister-in-law Kristen had a house um, up in, I think it was um, Connecticut, like near the water, like uh, not Guilford, but you know, around that area. Yeah. And the shoreline, yeah, <laughs> near the um, near the as outlets, call, of course, as, as we Clinton call it here, or yeah, yeah. The <laughs> yeah. We're going to the um, shore. And so she, um, it was in the summer, so it was probably around you know end of July, August, and we all got together, Judy and my father in law, and um, my husband and our kids, and Kristen and her family. We just had beach time. So, you know, Judy, we all went to the beach. We hung out. We had her hat on and all of her sunblock. And she always, she had very fair skin anyway. So she, we was like, she'd always lather herself up. Yeah, sunblock. Um, Because one of the favorite things, as I mentioned, she used to love the Cape and going, and one of the things that she loved to do was going swimming. And the Cape water is actually cold. cold. But no matter what, she would always, you know, take the kids in on their noodles and go swimming. And so the beach was always for us a very happy place. And so that summer we did um, a day at the beach with her and then like a little barbecue. Um, And that day we just forgot about her cancer, you know, and the kids didn't even realize that she had, you know, her hat on and she didn't go in the water, um, obviously, but you know, she was like sitting on her chair and like playing with the kids. She was like holding Emily in her lap and, you know, it was great. And we just had a barbecue and had her desserts and it was a great day. We all went home and she actually felt good that day. And, um, 
and that was, you know, one of the best days that we had. But we would do things like holidays. and We took the kids um, so that she could see them for their Halloween costumes. That was the last time they saw her. But again, she was in her, you know, we did it together. Kind of, I drove all the way up there and their Halloween costumes. Like, we're going to see grandma. <laughs> like, she wants to see you in your Halloween costume. Because at that time, my daughter was extremely infatuated with Elsa as every probably toddler was at that time. So um, she was dressed up beautifully as Elsa. And so we took, um, you know, we took her up to see Judy and that was, that was a good, we had some, you know, snacks and stuff. And then that was great. Well, I think it's important to do normal things Mm -hmm. because I think, and I look back at my own personal experience our thing was Sunday dinner or Sunday mm-hmm. lunch dinner. Like we would, we call it uh, linner. Like yeah. We would meet at like Italians right. at like two thirty, three mm-hmm. o'clock and have, can't really oh, yes. be lunch. Right. <laughs> it's not really dinner. Right. So, but that was something uh, with my dad that we always did until he died and, and through his sickness, but it brought us together as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think doing things as normal as possible and as important as those things are even in the light and in the face of a cancer diagnosis that could possibly be terminal is so critical it is critical and and i think you know you go through those emotions as i was mentioning before it's like you want to rush to get everything in and do like like a quick bucket list you know like we didn't get a chance to do this and um and you think back and you're like why did i wait so long right why didn't we just do this like before right you know and you start going through those like you know sort of regret pieces um but consistently right the beach was always something that we loved even at the cave we'd go up in the summers and and we would just kind of hang out so that july 4th weekend where it was kind of um a really stressful time for everybody kind of not knowing you know judy and i would just sit on the back um, on the front porch rather and just kind of hang out we had she liked her margaritas or her martinis. And so we would just sit and, you know, hang out there. We'd go to the beach and, you know, just spend time. We I didn't really know what to say. She didn't, like, we didn't, you know, you don't want to draw attention to it. You just kind of mm-hmm. want to live in the moment. And so that's what we tried to do as much as possible. Um, but you, on the back of your mind, you're like, oh, I need to tell her this. I need to make sure she knows this or that. And just before, she, you know, just because you want to have that, like, clean slate, you know, that nothing gets unsaid. Um and sometimes you just don't have that chance. So now, as a lesson learned, you should, I always tell people, like, hey, I love you. I want, you know, this is great. You know, just be more open. Like, why wait for Christmas or Easter to do something, right? You should just do it because. Yeah. I, I, it's a very hard lesson to learn that way, though. Yeah. You know, and I, I think, though, um, this comes up often, Kelly, like we when we have survivors and families on. And I think, unfortunately, and I've said this personally, this disease is really evil. But it also gives us the opportunity to do and say things that we probably normally would or lessons right. that we learn, right? True. Because I have a really good friend who got in a fight with his mom. And then his mom died the following morning of a heart attack. And he never got the opportunity to say goodbye 
or yeah. to to have that lesson that we've kind of seen, you know, and and that's pretty powerful stuff. And not to say that there's a blessing in all of this, because I don't I don't consider losing my dad a blessing, but right. there's a reason why all this has become. And so I look at it from that angle, or from you losing Judy in your life, you know, realizing that, you know, that's such so powerful stuff. But thank you for sharing that. Yeah, because no I, I think that's a lesson that um, I think in today's society. Sure, there's plenty of people listening to this podcast when it airs that are be that will be doing multiple things at the same time on social media or taking pictures or yeah. at the gym and not enjoying what's right in front right. of them or who's with them. Yeah, you know, and that's that's key. Who's like being present in the moment, not just being physically there, but being fully engaged with the people that you're with and learning from them and enjoying their company and just, you know, getting the ability to spend that quality time. You know, it's not just being on your phone or, um, you know, cause you take it for granted. And so, um, you know, we don't have that time back with our loved ones. And so, um, I, you know, I think learning that lesson is hard, but I think being able to pay it forward is more important, you know, now, like we just are able to, we, we know now. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. How would you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition? Um, you said evil. <laughs> um, you can't steal mine. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> Try and think of a different, um, I'm going through the thesaurus. I, I think if I were to sum up um, pancreatic cancer and what, did I give one word or two words? You can, go, you can <laughs> give as many words as possible. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, it is, a, I think it's been referred to as a silent killer. It's, um, it's just completely devastating. And when you get, there's no, it's almost like with other types of cancers, there's somewhat of potential hope. I think with pancreatic cancer, the moment anybody hears pancreatic cancer, everyone's reaction is so negative, right? So end game. And I would love for that to change. Um, purple is my favorite color. And, <laughs> and, um, I love to hate it, <laughs> especially with this. So um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can, as a community, as a group, find something to um, extend people's lives that are suffering from this. I feel awful for people that are suffering from it in their families. Um, and I want it to not be so silent anymore. What advice would you give to families listening to this? And maybe they have someone who's listening to this and their mother-in-law has just been diagnosed. Um, I would take a deep breath. Um, I think we react so quickly to things. Um, you got to do this. Did you call the doctor? Are you sure? You know, like we just get into this reaction solution mode. Um, you know, and I think for me, take a step back and think of them, think of the person that was just diagnosed, um, and just be silent and think about how you can support them first and then kind of transition to how you can help them. We always want to help, 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 help. And in some cases, the patients don't necessarily want to be helped. They just want to be cuddled or they want to be heard um, and let just let them get what they need to get out. And so that's sort of what I would say is just kind of take a breath, think about it, think at it from their shoes, step in their shoes for a second and let them have their moment. And then you have your moment. Um, and I think it's 
also opened us up. We were really afraid to kind of mention cancer or, you know, you're sick. Um, but it's the truth and we have to deal with it at some point. So it's better to kind of do it together as a family than to kind of go into silos and not discuss it, not, not heal from it. Right. Um, you know, we grieve in different ways. Um, but I think if, you know, we can do it together and be more open, I think the grieving stages and the ability to get through it both positively and negatively, I think benefits everybody. If that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. Was there something, you know, through this process that really helped you guys immensely? Like something that you did or something that you read? Because everyone grieves differently. Yeah. And everyone handles. But maybe there's something that you can share with the audience that really worked for you and your husband and the kids to like, you know, get through this whole thing. Was it a moment or like the light bulb went off like hey this is working let's do this or my kids love um they see hearts and like if they see when they see hearts no matter what it is like we again we at the beach we found a heart-shaped rock shortly after judy passed we just kind of went and um it was grandma like grandma loved hearts and so every time there could be bubble gum on the floor like on the ground and we're walking and my daughter would be like mommy mommy that's a heart or some blurb and like paint, like whatever we see, they see hearts. And it's true. Like it's really kind of bizarre, but they are. And for them, they see hearts and they were like, grandma's thinking of us. This is grandma. Um, and so they know that she's watching over them. We talk about grandma. Um, there's pictures of her in our house. You know, we, um, so it's open, right. They, in the jewelry and some of the things that, um, she made we you know my daughter has some my son has some things for her so when they get sad or upset they can you know kind of think about her that way um but then you know ultimately we find hearts <laughs> and that's you know we kind of keep her that in our you know thoughts that way she's always actually she was one of the first closest people to other than my grandparents but i was young as an adult to pass away um and so her passing has been really difficult so i think about her all the time uh, from hearing you talk, she had such a powerful influence on your life, I would imagine. And I think the emotions are very normal because I've read a lot that, uh, I've read a lot, but there was something that uh, struck me really in one of my books that I was reading about loss and grief and you know getting emotional about people i hope i don't butcher this is like that's a normal thing like that's how we miss them and how the impact that they had in our lives yeah you know it's just so powerful and the day that we stop crying is the day that we kind of forget right you know so uh, i think that's so powerful and i appreciate you uh coming into the podcast studio and sharing judy's story with thank us thank you thank um, you for having me <laughs> it's it's um you know i i think a lot of times I've said there's this shrapnel effect, right, from this disease. And we do lose the people that we love. And the spouses lose a loved one or, you know, we lose parents. And there's this shrapnel effect that happens that this disease puts on families. Um, but it's important to understand and realize that. And I hope today's episode has shown that, that, you know, life does go on and we don't forget those right. loved ones, but we hold on to those special moments. Absolutely. You know? Yep. So I thank you, Kelly, for coming on the Project Purple podcast and sharing Judy's story and, and your story. It's been one of inspiration. So I appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. (laughs) 